Hello and welcome to episode four of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast brought to you by Norton Rose Fulbright. I'm Arup Sen and I'm joined as ever by Simon Lovegrove. Hello Simon. Hello Arup. We are back after a Christmas hiatus with our bumper-sized episode. Jonathan will be taking a quick look at Brexit and also the recent short-selling ban on GameStop in the US. Uh, we then hear from General Counsel and Head of Competition and Enforcement at the Payment Systems Regulator, quite a mouthful that, Carol Bejant, who will be taking a look at the year ahead with NRF's own payments guru, Albert Weatherall. We then hop across the pond, or at least Simon does, for a discussion with on insider trading with Joseph Williams from our Washington DC office, before we close with a short section from tax partner Michael Alliston, who wants to flag a tax regulation that might have gone under many a business's radar. But before we kick off, over to Simon with the big RT stories from this month. Thanks, Arup. Great to be here again. In terms of recent developments, obviously the big news was across the pond with President Biden's inauguration. And a couple of days ago, on the 26th of January, we had the second instalment of our post-election webinar series, where Georgie Pataki, the former governor of New York, and Sam Raymer, former senior associate counsel to President Trump, and now a partner in our Washington, D.C. office, considered some of the appointments of the new administration and what these mean for financial institutions. Keeping stateside, as you said, later in this podcast, I'll be talking to another partner in our Washington, D.C. office, Joseph Williams, on the CFTC's authority and approach to insider trading. Moving closer to home, the debate on Brexit and its impact on financial services continues. We've added to the Regulation Tomorrow blog a further update on the transitional measures member states have implemented for UK firms. And keeping with market access for a moment, ESMA has issued a statement on reverse solicitation, citing certain questionable practices by firms. In the UK, perhaps the most important recent development is a new consultation from the Prudential Regulation Authority on its supervision on international banks. And Jonathan will be discussing both of these issues and his thoughts on regulatory issues related to the recent market volatility concerning GameStop. Thank you very much, Simon. Uh, so an awful lot uh, for us to get our teeth into. So without further ado, here's Simon and Jonathan discussing macro issues, Brexit and GameStop. In this section of the podcast, I'm joined by our global head of financial services, Jonathan Herbst. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Simon. Jonathan, I wanted to pick up with you today, two Brexit-related developments first. The first development I want to pick up with you relates to reverse solicitation. We saw ESMA recently issue a statement on certain questionable practices by firms around reverse solicitation, and I wanted to get your take on it. Yeah, thanks, Simon. Hi, everybody. I, I mean, I think the, the statement of the 13th of January, I have to say, was pretty much what we expected. It, did, it didn't say anything we didn't know. Uh, it picks out the obvious point that reverse solicitation means reverse solicitation. And if you, as per the recital 111 in MIFID 2, if you as a firm, a UK firm in this context, actually go out and solicit yourselves, um, then obviously that's not reverse solicitation for professional clients or um, ECPs. That's the obvious bit. There are a couple of sort of general points in the couple of pages of the statement. I think the main one is that it's ESMA giving a warning shot. It's basically saying, 
you know, don't try and get around it by going, you know, through using a sort of EU intermediary. We know that that's been consistent advice we've been giving and everyone else in the market has been. And also, you know, don't try and cut corners at the edge. I have to say it, what it doesn't do is deal with the much more complicated situations that, you know, we've been advising on where, you know, quite legitimately people are not targeting the EU market but clients come back to them or existing clients come back to them or whatever it happens to be. So look, it is what it is. It's what we expected. And it's a consistent line from ESMA, but it doesn't say anything new. And I don't think people should panic over it. It's what we expected. That's really helpful. Thanks, Jonathan. The second development I want to touch on today concerns the PRA's new consultation on its approach to international banks. There's not enough time in this podcast to cover all of the paper. And we did a full report on the regulation tomorrow blog but i just wanted to get your thoughts on booking models yeah thanks simon i mean it's an interesting consultation and definitely worth reading and then responding to um there's lots in there most of it is relatively uncontroversial it very much follows the pra's current approach of you know looking at each case on its merits but i think the booking model section is is a really interesting little development so the good news is that PRA reaffirms the approach that it supports integrated global booking models, that it has nothing against the sort of follow the sun model, which is highly established in global banking. And just pausing there, that is somewhat different to some of the language that has come from the ECB. And many of you may, may remember the slides from the ECB now a couple of years ago, which you know were not overtly hostile, but were more difficult. So that's the good news. I think what people may be not so much concerned with, but interested in, are the comments around the conditions that will be attached to that. In particular, adequate pre-trade um, controls, I mean, as well as post-trade, but particularly the focus on pre-trade controls. And also, you know, some noise around so-called sufficient risk management resource, you know, where you've got this sort of follow the sun model. And again, I think nothing new about that, but I think the devil will be in how it's supplied at supervisory level. And just to finish on this, that's a general theme with this paper, which is it very much keeps for the PRA its reserved supervisory discretion. It's not going to be tied down. And that, that to me is sort of macro message of this section and the others in the in the CP. Lots in there, but that's dealing with the booking question. And one final thing, just moving away from Brexit, there's been uh, very bizarre trading developments in relation to, to GameStop. And some industry insiders have branded it the French revolution of investing. Uh, what's your take on all of it? So look, this is a huge subject. Um, so first things first, I guess, just, just breaking this down at legal level, the question that people need to ask themselves in terms of the individual investors who are engaged in these sort of social media um, activities is, you know, are they potentially exposed in some way? Is there some argument about market manipulation? And we've seen now this is extended to metals, not just equities. I think my view is that in reality, it would be very difficult for a regulator to bring an action against an individual investor where essentially they would say, well, we are going against the short sellers. We think there's some legitimate reason to buy the stock or buy the metal or other commodity. It's fair to say that at technical level, when you look at Article 12 of, of MAR and the UK equivalent, 
definitely you've got a genuine debate about, you know, when is somebody giving, you know, doing a transaction, um, you know, that gives or, or is likely to give a false misleading signal. When is someone involved in something, you know, or with, with other persons or acting in collaboration where they're securing the dominant position, et cetera, et cetera. There's a really genuine debate to be had. And, and my sort of instinct on this is if it really got to a scale for any individual investor where they are involved in what is effectively a ramping up of price, then there may very well be a potential exposure. But I think in reality, for the sort of small investors involved where they, they would argue they're involved in legitimate activities, that is your starting point. To, to finish on this, and we could discuss this at great length, I think the main thing about this is it really brings out what I would describe as the open texture of the Ma regime. It's a really principles-based regime. And you know, what one person's legitimate behavior that goes against the hedge funds is another person's market manipulation. And I think we've really got to see how the regulators react and people are going to need to keep a very, very close eye on it. And perhaps in a moment, we'll come on to the reaction of firms, but I've dealt with the reaction of individuals if we were to be advising them. And Jonathan, what about the reaction of firms? I've seen in the press that several broker-dealers have blocked investors from opening new cash equity or option positions, and they may have also increased margin requirements for trading. Um, in these issuers. There's also been online messaging platforms that have made certain discussion group private in an effort to combat disruptive market activity, only then to reverse the course and allow groups to continue unfettered. What would, you be, what would your view be for firms? So look, I think there are two issues for firms. The first is, you know, can you suspend trading? Can you increase margin requirements, et cetera, et cetera? Now, largely, that's going to depend on your terms of business. But I think as a rule of thumb for most firms, they will have considerable flexibility in relation to that. And provided that's the case, uh, they should have a, a lot of discretion to actually suspend trading. That, in reality, very difficult to see how a firm could be criticized where legitimately they've taken a view. Now that obviously, that it means that there could be questions around clients if there's a closeout. So this is maybe slightly different to the question of closing out existing positions. And the whole question of whether you know you're doing it legitimately under the contract and could someone bring an action but i think the sort of argument of, a, of an investor to say well look you know you stopped me from trading more in this stock or this commodity i could have made more money generally speaking under terms of business that's legitimate but obviously got to keep a close eye on what the ombudsman does etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's issue number one that's very that's very broadly my view but lots of detail to be looked at there the second issue comes back to the what we were discussing a minute ago which is you know, what sort of monitoring should firms be doing? And I think just as with short sellers, firms do active monitoring. I think with these sorts of investors, firms need to do active market conduct monitoring. And I think what we, we personally, I think what we can expect from the regulators is, is that, you know, all the normal monitoring tools will be used. And to the extent that someone is deliberately trying to ramp up a price and then make more profit from it and effectively leave other investors behind to make losses, you know, that's the sort of situation where you could very well get questions from the FCA or other regulators as to what monitoring you've done. So what, those are the two key headlines, I think, for firms short term. Final one is keep a close eye on what the uh, regulators are going to come out with. I think that's going to be a, this is going to be a live story for some days or weeks. I agree with that, Jonathan. That's really helpful. Thank you.
for this episode, we're very lucky to be joined by Carol Beejan, who is the General Counsel and Head of Regulatory and Competition Enforcement at the Payment Systems Regulator. And we're going to be spending a little bit of time today exploring some of the more prominent themes in the payment systems landscape and also what the PSR has in its in-tray for the year ahead. So sort of diving in, we're obviously at the start of a new year, it's a good time to look ahead and, and think about what you know, it's coming up on the horizon. And so, Carol, how do you, when you look ahead to the year, what do you see as the kind of challenges and the core focus areas of the PSI in, in the coming year or so? Well, I think about it in terms of what's our current workload and what we might be doing in the future. So the sort of key policy initiatives currently that the PSR and the industry are working on are some of the major projects, such as the delivery of the new payments architecture, and then when we think about the future, we think about how we address the issues that arise as the market develops. A current one would be how we ensure that people continue to have the choice of payment methods, um, such as access to cash. In terms of the architecture, what do you see as being the kind of core benefit of that new payment system architecture? What, what is that going to bring to the table when that is, when that is built and launched? The thing to remember is that the new payments architecture was the industry's response to the need for development of a payment system that's future-proof and can adapt easily. So when we think about the infrastructure, we think about the potential for an updated interbank payment system and the greater role it can play in the evolution of retail payments in, in the future. And, and, and in terms of that, in terms of retail payments and, and what that will bring, I mean, one of obviously the core areas of your role and given your background as a competition lawyer is, is thinking about competition and access. And to what extent then do you think with initiatives like, you know, the new payment system architecture, you know, the conclusions of wherever we land on um, the payment services landscape review that has now concluded and we're waiting feedback on, where, where do you think, do you think that is going to contribute to competition in the space? And what is the PSR doing in terms of, you know, seeking to promote competition in, in payments, particularly in the retail payments landscape? Yes, the competition is very much at the heart of, of our thinking. And we think about competition in, in two ways. We think about, um, uh, incentives and whether there's a need to remove any barriers to ensure that competition uh, can flourish. Um, but we also think about it actually when initiatives are developed which may not have a competition focus, we will think about whether uh, the uh, proposals uh, have an adverse impact on competition. So that's, that's all um, standard sort of considerations of, of a regulator. I suppose I should say also that we think about um, whether there's a, a breach of antitrust rules. Um, they cause harm to firms and to individuals and it's something that uh, gets, gets overlooked when we think about competition. As I told, mentioned, the, uh, the MPA we anticipate is going to be bring benefits in competition and so will um, the, uh, the other developments that we see in, in the industry. You asked about the card acquiring market review. 
if if we proceed with um, the conclusions and put in place remedies, those will seek to achieve an improvement in, in competition. Yeah, so, so coming off the back of that, we've obviously had focus on card acquiring, we've had focus on interchange and access to, to things like faster, faster payments and for new entrants. Are there any big ticket areas for competition concerns or you know or, or practices that you're particularly focused on at the moment or, or any that you think will start to kind of rear their heads over the course of the next year uh, i'm not going to call out any any particular practices at the moment i will just mention that um we we do have an ongoing competition at case I, unfortunately i can't say too much about it at this stage of the investigation <laughs> um but definitely, I'd look forward to sharing the insights on, on our experience of running an investigation in due course. That would be incredibly helpful. And, and if I may, let me just pull us back to a slightly broader, bigger picture question, which is, you know, as you, as you look at the industry right now, and, and not necessarily just on the system side, but more broadly across the industry as a whole, do you, do you see a particular area that really appeals to you or stands out to you as being an area of, of regulatory focus, you know, in, in the near term. I mean, we've had various bits on safeguarding. There's there's still a bit of a debate about, you know, whether we need more accountability in the in the payment space in the same way we do for FISMA authorised firms with our senior managers regime. And so I just wonder if there's anything, you know, as you see it, that, you know, firms should be really thinking about or could expect to see some regulatory progress made in the, in the course of, you know, the near future. Yeah, so we're thinking very much about our strategy and our, our style of working. We consulted last year um, on the beginning of our strategy programme. I think that what it will do is it will um, enable us to consider the context in which we're working, given the development since we were, were set up. I think it's too early to say whether we would go down a, a particular type of regulatory route. At the heart, we're an, we're an economic regulator. Um, but what will come out of it is a greater sense of where our priorities are and the outcomes that we want to see in the industry. And then that will lead to a sort of greater clarity about the tools that we might, might use to achieve it. Excellent. Well, Carl, I know you're very busy and thank you so much for joining us. It's been really interesting to hear your perspectives and hopefully we'll be able to welcome you back over the course of the year to see how you're getting on. Um, but for the meantime, we wish you and the team all the best for the year ahead. Thank you, Albert. It's been a pleasure talking to you. In this part of the podcast, I'm joined by Joseph Williams, who is a partner in our Washington, D.C. office. Hi, Joseph. Hi, Simon. I know, Joseph, that you represent clients on a range of regulatory compliance and enforcement matters before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and also the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC. Joseph, for today, I'd like to focus on the CFTC and its approach to insider trading. My first question for you would be for you to tell us a little bit more about the CFTC's theory of insider trading in commodity and derivatives markets. Well, thanks very much for having me on. Uh, happy to join you today. It's really been long understood that involvement in physical commodity markets provides information that others wouldn't necessarily have access to. For example, companies with operations in, in agricultural or crude oil markets will have information about their own operations 
before that it goes public. Commodity traders use that non-public information about their own physical operations to hedge their changing risks. But when traders use material non-public information in breach of some pre-existing duty, then the CFTC may pursue the matter. This insider trading concept, it really has been used in different contexts and using different statutory authority as well. In 2013, the CFTC sued former NYMEX employees, alleging that they disclosed material non-public information about customer activity to a third-party broker. Then in the 2015 to 2016 timeframe, the CFTC alleged that two different traders used material non-public information gained through their employment to trade in their own personal accounts. Those allegations involved using the employer's information rather than a customer's information. In 2018, the CFTC brought another insider trading case alleging that the disclosure of information was used for trading in a friend's account. And there have been more recent cases picking up on these same themes. Okay, that's interesting. I just want to pick up on one point. You mentioned that the CFTC may pursue cases in which this information is used in breach of a pre-existing duty. Can you just tell me exactly what that means? Sure. The CFTC may seek to rely upon any requirement not to disclose or use non-public information. For example, a company may have a trader code of conduct that restricts the use of information gained through employment, or the trader employer may have actually entered into an employment agreement that restricts the use of information gained during uh, the course of employment. So, so very quickly to, to finish off, what should trading companies do to address this issue? Well, because this seems to be a continuing theme uh, with ongoing cases, companies really should consider conducting targeted compliance training on this topic. Hopefully traders will be receptive to this because it really can protect their own careers and livelihoods. In addition, legal and compliance departments of these companies uh, really needs to understand all of the restrictions on the use of information. A company's employment agreements, trader guidelines, compliance manuals, and similar documents uh, should be reviewed. There are also other potential restrictions, uh, for example, a non-disclosure agreement for potential transaction and other commercial contracts as well may limit the use of information gained in the transactional context. Okay, Joseph, that's very interesting. Thanks very much. Well, thank you for having me. In this section uh, of the podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Alliston, who's a partner in the tax team at Norton Rose Forbright. Um, and today we're going to be talking about uh, the possibility of VAT on uh, financial services. First of all, Michael, welcome. Um, now, let's just kick off with uh, a question. Were there any changes to tax rules as a result of Brexit uh, that businesses may not have spotted? Yeah, I mean, well, thank you for the invite. It's, it's really, you know, very happy to be here. Um, hopefully businesses um, have spotted everything that's relevant to them. But I think one item I did want to flag, which may have flown slightly under the radar, is the VAT recovery position on supplies of financial and insurance services to EU customers. So UK businesses are generally not able to recover input VAT on the costs they incur making supplies of financial services. The VAT that such businesses incur on their rents, their IT systems, their marketing, etc. It's all irrecoverable. It's an absolute cost to the business. The exception to this has historically been where those supplies have been made to customers outside the EU. But post-Brexit, the government has legislated to allow VAT recovery with respect to supplies made to customers in the EU as well. 
In other words, exports of financial insurance services outside the UK will allow that recovery. So what does this mean for, for businesses? I mean, for businesses making purely exempt supplies to the EU, there's an interesting question. They may not have been VAT registered before because they've assumed that whether or not they're VAT registered makes no difference as to whether they would have VAT recovery. This, though, is no longer the case, and there will therefore be an incentive for those businesses to register to allow them to recover. For businesses that are already registered, they should be aware of this, but it will be a case of checking their partial exemption method and seeing how that needs to be adjusted going forward. I think the most interesting area, though, is for international businesses and whether they can structure their affairs to take advantage of this change. Would a business making supplies to German customers from London be in a better position than making those same supplies from Germany? Now, the extent to which this is a viable option will depend on equivalents and other regulatory considerations, perhaps more than it does on VAT. Um, but it's something that businesses may want to consider going forward. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting kind of parameter to throw into the mix, as you rightly point out, as, as businesses do look to sort of find that that jurisdiction that sort of hits their sweet spot. Um, now, uh, what sort of things should we be looking at going forward? What's what's kind of next? What's sort of the next thing that we should expect in this space? Well, I think VAT is definitely going to be under the microscope. For so long, it's been constrained by the rules around EU harmonisation. So I think it's an area where we're going to see significant change over the next few years. The government has already indicated it proposed to look more widely at the VAT rules for the financial insurance sectors. And this is acknowledged in a recent funds consultation paper where the government expressly flagged the opportunity that leaving the EU gives for VAT reforms. I mean, given that, I think it's going to, not going to be too long before I'm talking to you again about changes to the VAT system. Well, I look forward to that, Michael. Um, thank you. So, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to speaking to you soon. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you to all of our speakers uh, on today's episode, particularly our special guest, Carol Beagent from the Payment Systems Regulator. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed today's show. Uh, please log on to regulationtomorrow.com for daily updates on financial services news and we will see you in a few weeks' time with the next episode. Bye-bye.